Hey guys, this is Chris Dixon, Senior Editor of Power and Motor Yacht Magazine, and today I'm bringing you a special podcast with Florida boat building icon Roy Merritt. This interview is, I hope, particularly timely and poignant given last week's passing of a good friend of mine and of Roy's, um, a nautical musical legend named Jimmy Buffett. I worked for Jimmy in various capacities through the last over two decades, and you can hear a bit more about our time on the water by scrolling down and listening to our Live Like Jimmy Buffett pod from September 7th. Well, Roy um, also had a very special relationship with Jimmy, the mayor of Margaritaville, um, not only being a customer on a couple of the coolest and most creative boat builds we've ever seen, but also as a dear friend of Roy's. I traveled from Charleston down to Pompano Beach to interview Roy on a baking hot day in August, and we had a wide-ranging conversation on Roy's life, his career, his evolution as a boat builder, and of course, his friend Jimmy. I hope you'll enjoy this pod, but I'd also first like to take a moment to acknowledge Imtra Systems, the company that makes this podcast possible. A quality windlass is the backbone of any anchoring system, and its reliable performance is crucial for day boaters and long-distance cruisers alike. If you're looking to install a new windlass or upgrade your current anchoring system, Emtra has everything you need. With premium windlasses from leading manufacturers like Lowfrans and Muir, Emtra offers every variation to meet your specific needs, whether you're looking for horizontal, vertical, electric, hydraulic, or manual windlasses. You can find them at www.imtra.com. And now, on with the pod. I am on a boat builder's hallowed ground today in the office and at the boat yard of Mr. Roy Merritt. I think it's safe to say that Roy and his uh, family's legacy are pretty much legendary here in South Florida. Um, and uh, Roy has been kind enough to take some time and talk to us about his company, his family, his background, and what he's got going on now and what might happen in the future. So, um, Roy, I really appreciate you taking the time and welcome to the Power and Motor Yacht Podcast. Well, thank you, Chris. Happy uh, you came out to see me here. Well, I am too. Um, here in hot and sunny South Florida. Roy is showing me a picture of a very beautiful boat, by the way. I'm looking at it on his phone, and I think we will probably at least chat a little bit about this boat a little well, later in the maybe conversation. A maybe a little bit. Um, so, Roy, let's talk about... Um, I, I kind of want to start at the beginning. I mean, you know, you you Merritt's been around in South Florida at this point for over 100 years now. Is that right? You, you got it just about right. Uh, let me start with my grandfather. My, yeah. gran my grandfather was a, um, he was a farm boy from Michigan. He made his way down to Norfolk, Virginia about the time, a little before World War I okay. started. There was a need for workers. So he learned a trade there, which was being a boat carpenter. A lot of things were built out of wood back then. <clears throat> so after the war, he buys a houseboat because it was a cheap way to live. Right. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a skinny little old boat, and it was um, it was him, my grandmother, and five kids. It was him, your grandmother, and five kids. Yes. Okay. Somewhere around 1923 or 4, he heads south. 
with the boat because I know my dad was was born in Virginia, nineteen twenty two. He heads south, and even though he stopped around West Palm, he made his way to Miami to work at um, Merle Stevens, which is a real old boatyard, been around forever. He heard there was cheap dockage up in Fort Lauderdale. Matter of fact, if you went to one part, you got it for didn't cost you anything. So that's, wow, really. And that was west of the um, Andrews Avenue Bridge in Fort Lauderdale. So he moved there, and about that time, he see he he, he saw people going out fishing and paying paying for it, and it was guys taking them fishing. And he thought he kind of liked that, so he <laughs> so he bought he bought this old boat. It was like a river. I don't know what you call it, with a clams or oysters or something, whatever you. It was a real low slung boat and the best we know it was around 1925 mm-hmm. and uh, the name of the boat was uh, Caliban the name stuck and all the boats that has ever been in the family are pretty much called Caliban do we know what the origin of that word is well yeah someone finally told him it came from a Shakespeare play Tempest I, I think it was uh, Ugly Sea Devil mm-hmm. oh wow was, and back then the boats are pretty ugly so it that it fit pretty good. Cool. But that that's how the name got going, and that's how we got going on fishing. So the one reason we're here today is because of fishing. And so with the fishing, of course, you've got fishing, you got to have boats. He, uh, he then built a boat in 29. He, someone sold him an old set of boat frames, and he's a pretty handy guy. He could build anything. And with that, uh, the boys are starting to grow up a little bit. They're running, they're running boats when they're 14, 15 years old. Mm-hmm. And um, they, they, they had a, five charter boats. Wow. In 1929 uh, or 30, he got the job in the summer to tow a houseboat to uh, Bayshore, Long Island. Mm-hmm. And with that, he got, the, he got the houseboat up there. Then he, with this customer he had, he took him fishing. Fishing was pretty good up there. And so with had that, had he fished up there before? Or he, no, he, this was just no, kind of a spec no, fishing no, trip. No, huh? no, never did. They most of the boats up there. If 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 you went, if you went the bigger stuff, you went to Montauk, but mm-hmm. but you didn't go in the middle of Long Island and do it. But the boats are starting to get a little bit bigger, even even then. So um, it, they went offshore a little bit because most of the boats in that area are fishing for stripers and bluefish, stuff like that. So he goes offshore. Started catching a bunch of tunas, and uh, business started getting real good. And then a year later, he moved to Freeport. He liked the idea of Freeport, Long Island, because it was closer to the city. He figured he could get more paying people come out of the city, which he did. Yeah. Bought a piece of property. They ended up having five boats up there. Wow. Um, After World War II... He um, he sells out. He he puts all his worldly possessions. He bought an old PT boat no and uh, another little boat. He he put on it a, a boat on top of a boat. He put a a car, everything he had, and headed south. As he headed south, he literally put everything on 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 a boat and, and headed, headed and headed south. Wow! And just headed south. He uh-huh. was heading to Fort Lauderdale. Well, on the way there, he stopped off right across the canal from where we are now, and uh, some. Lady came up asking his what his business was, and he says, "Well, I'm kind of looking for property." He probably wouldn't, but it, he didn't want to sound like a complete freeloader. But anyway, there's a piece of property across the canal. 
Anyway, he ends up buying it. Where we are now. Yeah, we had, we're, we got 13 acres. We He started out with seven, 8,500 bucks. <laughs> but it was all swamp. Right, literally. But huh? back then, you, you went in there and started, you, you, know, you, just, you just dug your own basin, got your own fill. And uh, that was the start of this place. Wow. And that was around 1947. We got we got one deed. I saw some property in '48. I'm not sure if I think some was '47, some was '48. A couple of pieces, and that's what we got here now. Gotcha. And, gotcha. and then over time, we started buying up whatever we could in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. and we're here today. You know, our but but fishing is what got us got us here. What? Who were some of the early folks that that? your grandfather would have interacted with down here. I'm assuming the Rivovich clan. Um, and, 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 and do you have any specific recollections of, I don't know, famous people he may have rubbed elbows with or taken fishing, that sort of thing, or just people of note, not necessarily famous, well, you know, the, the only one I know that was, I, I see one picture we have of the Caliban. He's got Thomas Edison's son and that was probably out of New York. Mm-hmm. But my grandfather didn't know the Ryaviches. Actually, my uncle got into building, mm-hmm. and he was he was be hooked up with, you know, Tommy Ryavich, who was the and when he got getting hooked up, he'd sneak up on weekends and take measurements off boats. <laughs> that's classic. So that's, that's how our relationship starts with the uh, Ryaviches. Wow. We, we don't do it that way. Nowadays, but uh, Mike and I just get the telephone to talk once in a while. Right. <laughs> so, and then, in, and then, in terms of your own sort of the the, I guess the place of you and your your siblings in this in this operation. Um, you know how 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 did that sort of evolve and, and come about? Well, the the yard it was my grandfather. My grandmother was the one who held it together. Hmm. She had most of the brains in the family. And then my uncle and my father were both ran charter boats. Mm. And they they gave that up in the mid-50s, uh, come to work in the boatyard. It wasn't, it wasn't much. It was uh, Quonset huts, a lot of sand. Here. Here, that's all it was. Gotcha. But they, my grandfather built, built a, uh, a, a railway. Back then you could get mach, uh, mach, uh, any kind of machinery from... Uh, you know, surplus World War II stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's pretty handy. He could figure out anything. And it was it was pretty crude, but it, it worked. And tell me about growing up here. I mean, it must have been kind of like a Shangri-La for, for a kid at that time to, to live here with, with, you know, it was a lot less developed. Well, the, back then, you know, our, our Papano was a bean town. It was a farming town. There wasn't much boating. There was charter boats. Over there, so they mm-hmm. were service and charter boats and a few private boats, but it was that uh, you had a hard time making a living, I think. Yeah, I can imagine. But was it a fun place to be a kid? Oh, yeah, fishing was good. Yeah, we, we always had a boat, right? I was gonna say, cause but it, that's that's what we did. And then, um, of course, in time, you know, you got to go to you, you get out of high school, you got to go to work, and none of our families have been educated, we just have to do it the hard way. <laughs> Well, it seems like it, it seems like it's been a real world education, if nothing else, right? I mean, well, you can you can learn if you want to. If you have enough, uh, if you have enough ambition, you can make a lot of things happen. So, uh, between uh, dumb luck and ambition, it worked out pretty good. Tell me about how the fishing, the the 
you know, I know how the Rabovich fishing boat sort of evolved. I, you know, I, we have a story in, in Power Motor Yacht, you know, recently. Tell me about how Merritt's boats evolved and maybe some differences in construction, purpose, you know, um, and, and, and that sort of thing, you know, early on and then, and then how things got bigger, if that makes sense. During the, during the say, mid to late 50s and also in the early 60s, the boats were small, 36, 37 feet, and that's what we built here. And what were they? What were you generally powering them with at that point, too? Uh, just gas engines, Chrysler's. Back then, there was a Daytona engine. There was a Chevy conversion. Mm-hmm. Diesels weren't. They're too big. No horsepower. Hmm. The the Rivich was building. Rivich set the standard for building fishing yachts. Where my uncle back then was building fishing boats. Um, there's their boats look better. <laughs> Our boats probably fish better, <laughs> but there's a market for both, and um, you know we we all we listen. We all owe Rivovich a lot. They, hmm. they they brought a lot to the business. They had all those rich Palm Beach customers, and we got the leftovers. But right. anyway, it uh, that's the way, and, and things evolve. And and when it comes to building boats, if you, you got to be a good listener, and people kind of tell you where they want to go, and of course. The main thing with boats is is the horsepower changes. It dictates what we can build. Well, you sure see uh, that now. Yeah, it means it means everything. Right. Uh, we couldn't be. We're building an eighty-eight footer now. We couldn't build that unless we had the engines that that we have today. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, without that, we wouldn't be building them. Absolutely, absolutely. The I think it was a was it the thirty-seven that you guys were were known for early on that that Merritt was known for early on. Yeah, we, we made our, back then they made, the yard made its name by the 37-footers they built. There's still a bunch around. Um, they're highly sought after from what I understand. Yeah, well, they're, they're getting kind of old now. I don't know where they all are, but there's a bunch in Hawaii. I know it's been a good place to put That's them. amazing. And, and places like that, you know, you can... You throw enough money at something, you can you can keep it floating a long time. Yeah, that's for sure. How about construction techniques? How did how were the first boats built, and then how did that how did that change as you know, as fiberglass epoxies that sort of thing? Well, the the big the big change with builders back from the fifties on is is uh, is going from uh, plank on frame to cold mold boats. And uh, we were we were transitioning in the um, early '70s on that, mm-hmm. and then uh, over over time, with uh, we never had a desire. The fiberglass boats just were too heavy, but over time, when we when we learned about composite construction, uh, that led the way for us to get into um, composite boats. Right. We we're doing a 46 footer. I think our first one we built was in. I don't know, 82, 83, like that. Gotcha. And then we're still, we were still building some wood boats. Mm-hmm. Uh, you built whatever you, you had to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's the way we did it. Talk about how the business has evolved, um, you know, from, from when you guys started and then, you know, up to now just in terms of, you know, I mean, this area has just grown so much too, but I'm just wondering in terms of, just how sort of the company operates. How how closely do you guys operate to what you did before? I mean, I'm sitting here right now in your old wood paneled office with with a 
you know, amazing 3D rendering of a, of a boat on your screen right now. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it, of course, it's changed a lot, and there's a lot of services that help us uh, do what we can't. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's uh, what we try and do in this business. It's a combination of service and building. When you build a boat, they want to bring the boat back to have it serviced. Right. So between mm-hmm. that and other and other stuff, and, and part of the reason too in building boats a long time ago was you needed something to do when when the summertime came because because the the boat repair business used to be very seasonal. Summertime, you you know you painted the buildings and you took on projects you wouldn't take on rest of the year. Mm-hmm. So the idea would was to build build a little more, make it part of what you're doing. And so you don't have the highs and lows of business. It was just a much more seasonal economy with people than you have now. I mean, because it's now South Florida is just year round, right? Nowadays it's year round, and there's and what's happening with boatyards, especially like something with ours. You know, we'll have people that'll the only time they can maybe get in here is summertime. Mm. So we we do uh, you know it just I don't know it just it just never stops. I can tell you that. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. What have been a few memorable builds that you guys that you well let's let's back up. I want to come back to some memorable builds that you've done. But tell me about tell me about your you, you said you're not college educated. Tell me about your your evolution into running the company and then and then sort of what you learned along the way. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, well it goes like this. First of all, you in a business in a place like this, you First, I've grown up in it. I've always been involved in, in the building. You, uh, you, as a young man, you say, you know, I'd, I'd much rather build and paint bottoms or right. repair boats. So it leads into that. And of course, I've had some influences in my life that have that have helped me. And um, you know, every every boat builder thinks he's a boat designer. I'm no different. Um, some of us get it right, and some don't. Right. <laughs> and um, so it, it, that's that's the way that's the way it works out. That's I mean, cool. it, it um, that's that's just the way it is. Yeah, I got. So you. I'm sorry. So it's a lot more it's a lot more fun doing that. And um, and as you grow older in life, there's um, sometimes you just do it because you want to, mm-hmm. and you can. Yeah. And in our business, I, I treat it. I don't treat it as a hobby, but I've often joke about it. I said, I got the most perfect hobby shop in the world. I, I get to build what I want, and people get to pay for it. <laughs> now, now, how do you beat a deal? Now, how do you beat a deal like that? I, but I have a hard but time. Some, but there's some now. truth to it. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. How many people? How many people are working here now? And and tell me a little bit about the you know your sort of core your core team here, and then you know, how many folks do you have overall here at Merit? We're we're working on um, we're usually working on three to four boats, new new projects, at the same time. Okay, from just finishing them to just starting them mm-hmm. and all in between. We probably have about hundred people working here. Hmm. Um, it's I would say sixty percent uh, is new builds and forty is the other. Gotcha. And and so, but you guys. You guys look at it as you want to be sort of that long-time one-stop shop for a, for a buyer as well, particularly somebody who lives down here who's buying a well, boat. Well, you, you do. I mean, we we um, you build a boat, 
like a cradle to the grave. You build a boat, you service a boat, we broker the boats, we have an insurance agency here. Mm. Um, it's what we do. Right. What are what are some of the um, what are some of the things that you've seen in the last several years, innovation wise, um, that are either driving things or that are happening now or that are over the horizon, you know, in terms of in terms of you know, both construction but then also just equipment. I mean, we talked before I fired up the record button about engines, you know, and, and the amount of power that you're able to get out of them. Or maybe can you can you, can you tell me a little bit about maybe you know, building materials and then, but then also what are you seeing in terms of just technology that's really impressing you? Well, the main thing of materials, we, we know how to build them even lighter, but it starts getting real expensive. Mm-hmm. And the amount you gain just isn't worth it. Like we, we deal with, uh, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's not only the materials, it's the orientation and how you use them. I mean, I have an engineer come in once a year and kind of give me a physical just look, look over the boat. Can you see any way that we can improve this? And that's, that's what we do. I mean, mm-hmm. we're, we're doing that all the time. Yeah. Um, it's, you got to have a certain amount of skin thicknesses on a hull. We overdo it. Like, like, like the, a lot of boats we've built now have all been a, uh, like a 50-50 Kevlar hmm. glass. Now, the, the Kevlar is, a, is almost bulletproof. I have a, I have a Hydra Sports that has a Kevlar hull. Do you? Yeah, one of those yeah. early '80s ones. Uh, yeah, and and uh, you can run, you can probably run it up on the jetty, and you're going to pull yourself off without getting a hole in it. Yeah, it's that tough. Now, do I really need to do that much? And what does it cost? I don't know. I think it's worth it. Um, we are all, it- all our superstructure, our our top of the boat is all carbon fiber because mm. there I want the stiffness. Yep. I don't need to worry about running up on rocks. Um, but we, we do everything we can that way. We, we're always looking at weights, weights of anything. Any, any builder's really doing it. Uh, and, and, but you got to be practical about what you're doing. You don't want these things getting so expensive that no one will buy them. Is Kevlar in particular, I've heard, I, I remember reading something about, like, you know, just in terms of Kevlar and hulls, is it, is it easier to work with now than it used to be, or is it, is it, is it difficult is it difficult to 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 work with? And is carbon fiber very difficult to work with compared to you know polyester resin? Kevlar Kevlar, Kevlar is tougher because it's hard to wet out. But in our hulls, we go through an impregnator, which forces the resin in into the into the the fabric. Yeah, right. So, but but it can be a little tougher. Mm-hmm. And and thin epoxies work with it. Work with Kevlar real good. Mm-hmm. The, the the carbon's a lot easier. It wets out a lot easier. Uh, they both have a place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I was I, I think I read an article that one of our colleagues at at Angler's Journal wrote about you guys, and 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 you were saying now you're up to what eighty percent or so composites in a in a typical hull. Is that a, is that about right? Well, the the hull itself is all composites. Is it okay? You know, well, on our on our large our our eighty eight, we've got a our our keel has got stuff in it, but it's basically just hard stuff. You know, we don't, you know, we and that's because of hauling and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But the rest of the stuff is is all is all composite. Wow, uh, it's it's tough. It's it's 
it's strong. It's what you want. It 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 it, it didn't sound. It um, it's an insulator. Yep. It just it just does a lot for you. Emtra is a 100% employee-owned company that's committed to bringing best-in-class products, expert product knowledge, and unparalleled support to the entire marine industry throughout North America since way back in 1952. Well, what about propulsion and electronics? What are you seeing? What are you seeing that that's impressing you well, the, nowadays? We've, we've got a few boats out now. Um, it's um, it's called they're called wake adapted rudders and struts. Um, fellow Brent Savender, he, uh, he he does the engineering, does the, and we've been doing that in boats. It's uh, it's pretty nice. It, it it's extremely smooth. Mm-hmm. You pick up a good knot and a half. Wow, maybe two. Um, it's um, it's worth it. You spend a lot of money doing it initially, but it's it's worth every penny. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. And then you're, and then, where are you guys in terms of building boats with new outboards versus versus inboards? What what's your what's your sort of outboard inboard equation, and what's your thinking on on you know that part of the of the build? Well, outboards, uh, the under fifty market's definitely all outboards. We can see it with everything really? we do. Mm-hmm. I mean, we used to sell we used to sell a lot of inboard boats under fifty feet. When that doesn't that doesn't that doesn't exist anymore. Right. But uh, huh. things things keep changing. I mean, I mean, you know, going back to uh, on the inboards, like what do you see in equipment? Well, sonars are a big deal. Mm. We can't build yeah. a boat unless we put a sonar in it. Uh, many years ago, um, we started putting these fishing mezzanine. People would have done it anyway in time, and we're not the first to ever do it, probably. But I'm not. But but on the sport fishing sport fishing boat, it doesn't look like anybody ever did it right. Mm-hmm. Now we'd have happened in time because we're at a time as the boats are starting to get bigger, right? And it made more sense to build it that way. I know when we first started it. Nobody liked it, and and you told me if I recall correctly that was it was basically a buyer who who just said, "Gosh, can I? It's it's just kind of uncomfortable back here. Can you can you come up with something that works a little better? Is that is that right? That's exactly right. Guy's name was John Fossil. We're building him a seventy footer, and uh, it was rough and it was cold. And man, your rear end feels like it's going to go right to the cushion. I mean, it was very uncomfortable. Said, how come how come you can't have something with more comfort? And I said. Let me draw something up. So I did it that that evening, and we built it. You know? That's awesome. Yeah. So, so we did. and then if I'm not mistaken, you also take credit for the well, the rocket rod holder. Am I? Well, it wasn't me. It was um, we had a, we had a we had a, actually it was a couple of things. Uh, we had a we had a no customer Jojo Dogurcio. He was a keys fisherman, and we made him. It was a series of uh, welded aluminum pipes that sit on a pedestal mm-hmm. or a stanchion, and it looked like something I would use to set off bottle rockets. <laughs> so that's how it's got its name. But Love that's it. how. And with him too, we did a we did a fishing harness. He uh, back mm. when he caught a lot of bluefins, he came in a shop one day and he says they they had caught 104 fish in 19, 1976, and uh, boats called no, yeah the boat was called no problem. It's just an unusual season, and the old 
harnesses would collapse on you because they're all soft, mm-hmm. and the ropes will tear up your your hips. Sure. He says, he says, how can you make something keep the rope off me? I said, well, that's easy. I'll just make one out of fiberglass. And now they're all that way. Really? Yeah. Wow. I mean, it, it, it's just stuff like that. But yeah. usually, usually things uh, happen a little by accident or or a request, and I never thought of it until the guy said, "What well, can't." Once you do something about it, you know, yeah. that's how it happened. A solution for, for a, a, a problem that, that presents yes. itself, right? Exa- exactly. Gotcha. That's, that's, I'm sure a lot of things happen that way in life. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's, how we, that's how we move forward, I guess. Yeah. It? Well, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to, don't want you to reveal more than, than you care to reveal, but, um, you know, I, I've had the great fortune of, of, working with Jimmy Buffett some in the past and, and have really enjoyed it. Um, and I, I find him, you know, a a highly engaging, um, human being who, who knows a lot. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, if you, if you can or would talk a bit about, you know, just kind of your partnership with Jimmy, um, on your, on your first boat and, uh, and then, you know, what you, what you can reveal about what you guys have, have got going on now. Well, they came to us. He came to us. Um, I've known Vinny as captain. Mm-hmm. And uh, Vinny came to us and asked if we would uh, be interested in taking a, it was a Freeman Hall. Yep. And uh, putting a house on it and finishing the boat. And uh, I remember turning him down a couple of times and they kept it up and, oh, what the heck. So, <laughs> so we, we went ahead and um, they got the hull down here. They, they had the engines on it and the cap. And then we finished it, and um, it, it was uh, it, it was a it was a fun project. I mean, it was uh, it was something different. It's always nice to do something a little different, and so that's how we got involved with Buffett. Um, I kid around with Jimmy. I said, Jimmy, you, you made us famous. <laughs> <laughs> was that was that for better or for worse or for both? In this case, that was good. I, I know one thing. We had tons of people that want to know what are you doing with the mold? Can you build me one? And even Freeman, they want to know they were building a bigger boat. They want to know if they could, if we would do a, mm-hmm. I guess, do the design and build and give parts or finish boats. I don't have any interest in doing that, but uh, uh, there's, there's a need for it. Yeah, yeah, and, it's interesting. And, and, and I can understand why a production builder like, like, like Freeman, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense because you're you're kind of getting into the almost like the, not that they couldn't, but. If you got a setup in your shop where you build all fiberglass and you build the you build the pieces, you put it together, and they go out the door, and you do that well, they want to stick with it. It makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. But you get into something something like what we did for Buffett. It uh, it's a different it's a it's a different kind of shop. Well, it's also not a necessarily a boat that is. You know, I mean, if you're going to have to set up, correct me if I'm wrong. If if, if you're going to have to set up, if you're a Freeman. And you're going to have to set up tooling to build a, a boat with a with a pilot house cabin like that. That's it, you may not have enough demand for for that to to justify it. Am I? No, I think I think the demand is there. The mm. the, the tooling is the easy part. It's the finishing is the mm. tough part. Right. Because once you get that house and you get, and you can put more stuff in it, everyone wants something a little different. Mm. That's how you end up. That's it. I was going to say that that's kind of a. That's kind of a difficult. It makes it difficult to make things 
standardized, obviously, but you also so so. It, it where is your where is your sort of trade off there when you're designing an interior of a boat? You know, um, do you set aside you set aside space for a cooler that could then also be a seat? That you, you know what I mean, or or a, a, a another spot that could be a an area for a head, but would also work as a refrigerator space. Well, the smaller the boat, the less options you have, mm-hmm. and they pretty well know what most people want. Of course, the larger the boat, there's more options. So now, what you're doing <clears> is you're getting more into custom building, and either either you can be a real good production guy, or you can kind of slow the works up. And do the custom mm-hmm. stuff, and I'm not sure it's in your best interest to do it. Yeah, I've, right. I've never tried to do that, so I don't know. Gotcha. That's a, that's an interesting point. You know, if, you, if you're if you're putting out a hundred boats a year, building a boat like we did for for Buffett, probably wouldn't make any sense. Right. Right. Maybe it would. I don't know. <laughs> Take some serious market research, I guess. In terms of in that that boat specifically, did you guys in in collaborating coordinating with with billy and their crew um did they provide renderings of the hull ahead of time or did you guys get the hull down here and then build based on what you got does that make sense i mean did you yeah. did you know the specs and and all that well when we said okay tell you what if you got a design let me have it hmm. and um and they uh, they were real slow, and I know Vinny at the time was getting frustrated because they wouldn't do anything. So I said, "That's <laughs> all right, I'll draw it." So when I said that, they said, "No, we'll do it." So they sent it. I didn't like I didn't like what it looks like. I said, "I'll draw it. If you like it, we'll build it. If not, we're not going to do it." Right. And Interesting. That's, and that's how it happened. Mm-hmm. That's and, cool. Uh, no, all all we had we didn't we we had like a, what we call a plan view of the boat. And that was that was all. Oh, okay. That was all we had. A plan view. That means looking down on it, and that's what we did. And um, you, know, you you saw his boat when you got. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I did, and um, yeah, it was it, it's interesting too because I mean you know, you and you and and the Freemans are both kind of entrepreneurs in your own rights in your own spaces so you know it, it, it was it was just an interesting idea for a collaboration to me as well now we, can you can you talk a little bit about what we've seen some glimpses of that you guys have going on with Jimmy now well let's just say we're working on a special project mm-hmm. it's a it's a bigger one of what he's got and um, the bill is going on right now and I think they want to tell their own story is, yeah. what, is what they really want to do. But uh, I've seen Vinny putting out bits and pieces, literally. But but I can I can tell you the the build is going on, and uh, they they like I'm no hurry to sell anything, so they're I've agreed to do it by their by how they're doing it. How when you're building custom boats like you are, you know, I mean, and and is every client different? Um, I mean, you know, is is say Jimmy, you know, is he a typical client on a on a build, or or is every client different in terms of both their knowledge, um, of what they want and what the and their knowledge of boating, or uh, do, do you see what I'm saying? I mean, I, I'm just wondering, like, if if there's any sort of quintessential customer for a merit boater, if everybody's different. Everybody's different. Everybody's it, different. It just comes down to preferences a lot of times. A lot, a lot of times, uh, 
like a cockpit we put in now. Do you want a spiral staircase going to the bridge or do you want a ladder? Mm-hmm. Do you want a day head? Some of these things are important to people and, and some of they mean everything. Yeah. But they're all they're all different and uh where they where they seem to be more um, more involvement is what the inside what the colors look like, the stone, the fabrics, the soft goods, stuff like that. And once in a while they'll do something a little different. Mm-hmm. We can we work with them whatever they want. Cool. Gotcha. Well, let's talk quickly about um, your family. You know, I mean, it, it, where where do you see, um, I guess, are you going to keep this a family operation moving forward? What's your, uh, I, I hear you have a granddaughter who's young and but already wants to take things over. Well, I got a, I got a granddaughter and a grandson. They both want to come into it. Uh, yeah, the best, the best way to keep a family together is... Um, or a good way can be to have a business they can work in, and and after a while, you the best way to preserve wealth is to uh, have some good real estate, <laughs> which you so, surely do. So when you got thirteen acres on the intercoastal, not a better way to keep. We get offers all the time, and um, you know what would you do with a lot more money? It doesn't doesn't do you any good. Still go to work six days a week myself, so I'm. You you do that no matter what, right? No, no matter what. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, very cool. Um, what did we leave out, Roy? I feel like uh, we're, we're part of me feels like we scratched the surface and part of me feels like we hit a lot of bases. I think I think one thing I would ask is um, it, what from what from your vantage point and how long how long have you now been CEO of this company or director of this company? Well, I've I've. I've if you knew my, first of all, you remember the two brothers. There's Monko, who's the builder. Right. My father, he was the front man. Mm-hmm. He was real good. My grandfather once said he couldn't build a square box with a set of plans, but he was he had the he had all the personality. But at an early age, he 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 backed away off of everything. He really was, he was so I've even though his his name was on the. Uh, company as the president um the last i don't know 30 years of his life he 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 acted he had acted like he acted like chairman of the board not the <laughs> not who not who ran things so he had he had you sort of running things from that from yeah. that point yeah essentially well what um you've I'm, i know you've seen a lot of builders come and go um and i'm wondering and you've touched on some of this already, but I'm wondering if you have sort of a set of tenets or, uh, you know, just some rules that you and this company sort of live by to stay in operation for as long as you have. Well, you've got to stress quality, quality no matter what you do. And if you, if you do that, everything else kind of takes care of itself. Uh, you can't be, you can't be stupid about it, but you got to, you got to maintain the quality and, you know the best of the best of everything you can put out there, mm-hmm. and you stick with that, and the rest will work out pretty good. <laughs> I like that. Cool. Well, um, Roy Merritt, thank you so much for taking some time with us for the Power and Motor Yacht Podcast, and uh, we're looking very forward to seeing what comes out of these uh, construction bays in the near future. Well, thank you. Well, uh, we we hope we. Uh, 
We hope you can still build them. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, this is Chris Dixon with Power Motor Yacht signing out, and we will see you guys on the water. Thanks a lot. If you're in need of a windlass, handheld remote, chain counter, chain stopper, anchor swivel, prefabricated or custom spliced anchor road, or electrical components like solenoid control boxes and circuit breakers, MTRA pretty much has it all. MTRA has a team of experts dedicated to helping you find the perfect solutions for your boat, including offering maintenance kits and troubleshooting advice to keep your anchoring system running smoothly for years. Visit MTRA.com or give us a call for answers to all of your anchoring questions.